From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Limbus on the move. In contrast to what we used to think, this is an abnormal epithelial cell, and it's an abnormal stem cell, and that really fits with all the data. First this. Following our podcast today, we'll have a message about the upcoming ASCRS Glaucoma Day 2011 at the ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego. Pressure is important, but don't lose sight of the vision. Glaucoma Day features critical updates, robust debates, and interactive case studies on what comprehensive ophthalmologists and anterior segment surgeons need to know about glaucoma management. There's so much I love about ophthalmology, the physics, the high-tech equipment, the near-instant gratification of many ophthalmic surgeries. One of the quirky things I love is the overlap between ophthalmic and astronomical nomenclature. What other field talks about scintillation and asteroid, or for that matter, globes in orbits? And what other field has a pathology dependent upon albedo? Okay, I probably stumped some of you there. Albedo is the property of a surface, like that of the moon, to reflect light. And the pathology is, of course, pterygium. I spoke with Ted Reed, an expert on the subject, about pathogenesis of pterygium. Ted Reed, welcome to a scene from here. What's going on histopathologically in a pterygium? Um, What you see um, histopathologically in a pterygium is first you'll see a pinguecular form. Then you see this raised um, tissue seem to start to move out onto the cornea because there's more, there's actually more epithelial cells in the limbal region than there is on the cornea. And so you see this raised epithelial region move onto the cornea first. Then what you see next is a dissolution of Bowman's membrane, or layer, I should say. This is uh, followed by a r- large mass of fibroblasts, which has above it around two to six epithelial cells thick, whereas this raised epithelial layer is about six to 20 epithelial cells thick. Underneath that raised epithelial layer, you will see some dissolution of Bowman's starting. And uh, from an immunohistological standpoint, we actually see uh, MMPs being released, and they appear to be released by the basal epithelial cells over Bowman's. So what it appears to be doing is this: you see a migrating limbus going out onto Bowman's that's releasing the matrix metalloproteinases that are dissolving Bowman's layer underneath it, and that triggers fibroblasts to move in underneath this and produce this mass that most people think of as the pterygium. In fact, if you look in the classic literature, what you'll see is that it's thought to be an abnormal fibroblast growth. And what the data says is it's not an abnormal, there may be abnormal fibroblasts there. And we can discuss later why there are abnormal fibroblasts there. But the pterygium is caused 
by an abnormal limbal basal stem cell that's moving onto bones and causing this dissolution. And it's sort of a, a wound healing type response that's happening here where as it starts to dissolve Bowman's uh, layer, this releases growth factors in Bowman's layer that are sort of stored there. This was um, really a, an old uh, story that was pushed forth that they were called stormones almost, where these growth factors are there in this matrix that we call Bowman's layer. And as you're released, this triggers a wound healing response because as far as the fiberglass underneath can tell, this is a, a wound that's been created. It's a very slow-moving wound. And this causes these fiberglass to come marching in to try to heal the wound, and that's, what you, that's why you see this mass of fiberglass coming underneath uh, the trigem. We're going to be talking about causative mechanisms, but before we get to specifics, can I get you to describe broadly the categories of etiologies we'll discuss? Okay, the, there's been many proposed causative mechanisms, viral, genetic, extracellular matrix, but the one that really fits with all the data is UV, and this is UV damage uh, to cells, and these are, in fact, the, the damages to um, limbal stem cells. When I think of pterygia, I think of actinic exposure. How does UVB cause pterygia? Okay, first, we think the first step is the UV, first of all, why is the trigium on the nasal side? Well, the reason it's on the nasal side, and this was really work by an um, uh, ophthalmologist in Sydney, Australia, uh, Coronio, and he did a lot of work on albedo light. And what you have is light coming in from the side. It's not really light coming from straight on that causes the trigium, it's light from the side. And light from the side is focused by the cornea on the limbal region uh, on, the, on the nasal side. So it's coming in uh, temporally, and it's focused by the cornea on the nasal side. Now, people with low bridges to their noses, uh, Asians, can have pterygia on both sides. But primarily for people with large noses, they get them on the nasal side. And this is because it's the light coming from the side. And what he showed was that light focused by the cornea is 20 times as intense as light coming straight on which is really why you should have guards on the side of your sunglasses if you're going to wear sunglasses to protect against pterygia because it's light coming in from the side. And he also showed that, in fact, you can, if you do serial sections of an eye, you see that same type of damage in the trabecular network. So it's being focused in that region of the eye. Now, that light causes uh, UV damage to the cells, and this is what we see, what we think is cause, the first cause of a pinguecula. And pinguecula, as you know, is very, very common. And this damage is seen first in fibroblasts. And so people tend to think, that's why people tend to think of this as a, a fibroblastic problem. But I think the fibroblasts, you see this change in the fibroblasts, and you see the change in the uh, elastotic um, fibers. You see a decrease in a stage one pinguecula in um, vessels. You see a decrease in collagen bundles. You see a decrease in collagen, but you see these elastic fibers being produced. So it's an abnormal fibroblastic problem. That's in what we call pinguecula stage one. Then in the pinguecula stage two, as you get more light 
over a period of time, you'll start to see a raised epithelium over that region. And what we think is going on is this is where you're actually, you've caused mutations in the epithelial cells. You still have this um, sort of actinic keratosis there underneath. You have an actinic exposure to these fibroblasts, but it's not really, they're not really the, the causative agents. They're just abnormal because of the sunlight damage. But ultimately, you pick up a mutation, the proper mutations. There could be a series of mutations. No one knows for sure which mutations. In the limbal stem cells, and that's the trigger for the pinguiculum. I can understand the connection between UV light and inflammatory mediators, but why should these mediators result in a pterygium? Okay, I think the, the, uh, the inflammatory mediators may or may not be a real important player in the pterygia, but I think they're caused by all the damage that's being done around the um, limbal stem cells. Now, whether they're actually caused by, by factors being released by the, uh, the uh, limbal stem cells or if they're coming from these abnormal fibroblasts, I do not know. You describe a deficiency in apoptosis. Is this a cause or a result of the pterygium formation? Well, in a way, I think it's a cause. But what's happening here is somehow you create a situation where the um, apoptotic mechanism can't come into play. And, and the reason we know it doesn't come into play is because we see elevated P53 in pterygia. And so here you have this elevated P53, and that's almost synonymous with um, apoptosis, apoptosis. So what is happening here is somehow the light has damaged, initially we thought it was damaged P53, so we thought there was a mutation in P53, and that's why even though it elevates, you don't get this apoptotic mechanism, and this allows you to pick up mutations in the epithelial stem cells, which uh, cause this growth to move out onto the cornea. But in studying the P53 gene, and we did this quite extensively, we saw no um, mutations in the P53 gene. Now, some laboratories have reported some mutations in the P53 gene. However, what I think, what we think is going on there is we did not look at the P53 gene in pterygia with dysplasia. And about uh, 10% of your pterygia will have dysplasia. And we think in that case, and that fits with the percentages that they saw of, cell, of pterygia that had uh, P53 mutations. And we think that's why there is a mutation in the P53, and that's associated with a pterygia with dysplasia. We picked only pterygia that did not have dysplasia associated with it. Ted, what is P53? P53 is a um, gene that codes for a protein. The protein is P53. Actually, the, the gene is, is called uh, TP53. Um, P53 is this protein that <clears throat> can trigger apoptosis. It's a, it's a cell growth control gene, and it also can trigger apoptosis. Usually, P53 is a sensor of uh, UV damage, for instance. So when, when UV light hits your skin, this triggers P53 production in those cells that are damaged, have damaged DNA. Damaged DNA is, triggers P53 release, and that causes the cell to, to have programmed cell death. So what is going on here is this programmed cell death mechanism is defective. Now, it appears that it's not in the P53 gene, 
but it's somewhere else. Now, whether, as, uh, as you know, we reported that uh, BCL2 is increased, BCL2 will block this uh, mechanism. Also, survivin will block, will inhibit that mechanism, and that's found increased in pterygia. So it appears it's something else besides the P53. So P53 is sort of an early signal to tell you there's been damage there, and it says that the cell is trying to trigger hematosis, but it doesn't, it's not able to. And whether this is due to the BCL2 or something like survivin uh, is not yet established. The picture you paint is of a broadly immunologically active lesion. What's present? What cell types? What mediators? And do we know if their presence heralds the formation of a pterygium or only follows it? From looking at the data, it appears that it follows it. It's sort of a, it's because of all the damage and you're doing, it's sort of a wound, again, a wound healing type uh, mechanism that's going on here. And this triggers. Now, whether they, it plays a very active role in the actual growth, I doubt it because this thing moves so slowly. In fact, that's one of the big questions. Why does the pterygia move so slowly? Because, as you know, epithelial, those limbal epithelial cells can replace the, totally replace the epithelium of a cornea in just a few days. And yet, here we have an abnormal epithelial cell that's not moving that fast. And what it looks like is that this is the stem cell, and stem cells themselves, as you know, do not ordinarily move. So somehow it's triggered this uh, this limbal basal stem cell to start to slowly move out. It moves out radially. It goes in all directions. It goes actually into the conjunctiva as well. But when it moves into conjunctiva, it doesn't produce a pterygia because it doesn't have, it's not going out into Bowman's, and it's the dissolution of Bowman's that triggers all those fibroblasts, which we see as this massive growth. So as it moves into conjunctiva, it doesn't really do anything because there is no Bowman's layer there that's acting as this sort of stormone that releases growth factors. Um, but that's an important consideration because later uh, we can talk, we can discuss the why do these trigger reoccur after you remove them. And... Uh, the reason is, is because these, these what we call a pterygia cell has moved out radially in all directions. And if you don't remove it all and you remove the pterygia, it's just going to come back and produce another pterygia. You describe a role for angiogenic factors. Can I get you to elaborate on this? Well, the angiogenic factors really provide the blood supply for the, um, or allow you to produce a situation where you have a blood supply for those for those cells growing out onto the onto the cornea, and that's be their role as a supportive role, in that the uh, they produce the vessels that you see in the tridges that moves out onto the uh, cornea. Actinic exposure is associated with elastotic damage. What role do extracellular proteins play in pterygium formation? Well, the extracellular proteins that really play the main role, as the, from what I see of the data, is really those extracellular matrix proteins in Bowman's layer. And those are the key proteins. And it's, it's when you start chewing up those proteins and breaking down that extracellular matrix that you really trigger this wound healing response or what appears to be something like a wound healing response that causes this growth, these, these fibroblasts to move in there and try and 
um, heal that, that growth. There's certainly um, a lot of reports on this. However, no one's been able to really piece this together and show a really good uh, relationship. There's, there's certainly families where this appears to uh, happen in a, in a very high incidence, and, and they appear very young. But whether it's, the, whether it's genetics or whether it's just their environmental factors, like maybe they're all getting a lot of sun, this is, as you know, Trigia were a huge problem in Australia, and a lot. And the Australian government made it a program to cause to have little kids when they go out to play. It's at recess, for instance. They have to wear a hat with a large brim. They have to wear uh, proper sunglasses on their on their on. And they've almost started to wipe out um, Trigia formation in Australia. It's a it's a governmental program in Australia. Are recurrent pterygia caused by the same mechanisms? Yeah, what we think is going on is that if you look at the front of a pterygia, what you'll see is this, this, you'll see first this mass, and then if right in front of that mass, you're going to see a nice clear area that looks like normal cornea. And those are really pterygia cells. Uh, it's been shown histopathologically that if you do immunohistopath on those cells, those are not normal epithelial cells. Those are actually a limbal stem cell that's in front of that mass. And, and a lot of times people are not removing that. And those cells have actually invaded and gone out radially. And if you don't scrape all those off, that can regrow. And as I also said, they're growing also back into the conjunctiva. And so people like to bring that conjunctiva up to sort of cover up the, the wound. And you should really probably grab a piece of conjunctiva from up underneath the um, eyelid farther away from the, um, the trigia and put that on to cover up your, uh, your scar. Because what you're really doing is just there's still those cells there that you haven't removed them all. You think you've removed them because you removed that mass, but the mass is just those fibroblasts that are underneath there. Now, of course, uh, people, as you know, are giving uh, things like 5-FU, and that would, be, that would kill a lot of those trigia cells, and that's, that seems to help in cutting back on the um, incidence of recurrence. Having written this paper, what do you do in your own practice, aside from asking your patients to wear UV-blocking spectacles? One of the other people that I've done a lot of research with Trigia with what he does, and he tries to definitely remove a lot of the um, epithelium around there, around the wound, after he removes the, the Trigia. And also, an interesting thought that we're working on and we're trying to get some data for is the fact that if a, what you first see is probably the pinguicula. Then you, that's stage one. Then you see the stage two, you see the little raised area over the pinguicula. Probably if that was removed, which is a very benign procedure, that would probably delay the formation of a true pinguicula uh, by 20 years because it probably takes that length of time to cause the mutations you need. So if you remove those mutated cells, and that's a speculative idea for the future, but what, uh, as I say, what most people do is just try to take a wider area of, of the epithelium off around the trigia to make sure that this is not gonna, going to uh, come back. In contrast to what we used to think, this is an abnormal epithelial cell, and it's an abnormal stem cell, and that really fits with all the data. So we really... A pterygia is an abnormal limbal basal stem cell that has been mutated and it appears by UV light. All the data seems to fit with that. And 
that allows this cell to start to do something it's never done before, and that's starting to move away from that little niche that it sets in right there next to the cornea. Because this is a, these are the cells that provide all the epithelium for both the cornea and the conjunctiva, and now all of a sudden they've changed, and they start moving, and uh, you don't see them move into the conjunctiva, but they're there because we've stained and, and, and we can see them. But because of this difference, this in unique structure that you have on the cornea, this triggers a response that, that appears as this massive growth. It looks like a mass is starting to move on to the cornea. And it's really all the, I think the Australian study is really the best one to show that they've almost done away with the vitrigen. It was a huge problem in that country just by blocking UV light. And they, they did this in all the schools, and they have people down there really covering up. Ted Reed, thank you so much. Well, no, it's my pleasure. Ted Reed is professor in the Departments of Ophthalmology and Visual Science, Cell Biology, Biochemistry, Chemistry, Microbiology, and Immunology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in Lubbock, Texas. His paper, The Science of Pterygium, is in press in the British Journal of Ophthalmology. I had the opportunity to talk to Gary Condon about the upcoming ASCRS Glaucoma Day 2011 at the ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego. Gary, what's your role in Glaucoma Day? The ASCRS has a glaucoma clinical committee, so I help in planning the program as well as being on the committee. And in planning the program, I'm often involved in it as well. Gary, what are you trying to accomplish in this all-day meeting? Our objectives are really to uh, create a program that's aimed for the more comprehensive ophthalmologist. The program content is geared more toward someone who's not involved in subspecialty tertiary glaucoma care, but in day-to-day taking care of patients, many of whom in a general ophthalmic practice have glaucoma, and um, give them a sense, a hands-on sense of how they can go back and feel that they have a better handle on taking care of patients with the latest information, more practical, hands-on, take-home information that they can use day in and day out and and not something that is sort of being debated in in the halls of the glaucoma subspecialty arena. Gary, you mentioned that Glaucoma Day is really focused on having participants bring something home, get something very concrete out of it that they can add to their practice. Can you give me an example, you've been both a speaker and an audience member, of something practical that you've taken back? Well, I'll tell you, Josh, the thing that I, the thing that I take home from it, the thing that I take home from it the most is a sense of security. I can, I can get a good feel for where I am in the spectrum in terms of the, of the decision-making processes that we consider when we take care of a patient who, for instance, is a good old garden variety, day-in, day-out glaucoma patient who has cataract. Yes, I'm going to do the patient's cataract. Is it okay to do it without doing anything more right now for the glaucoma? And the best part of the glaucoma day is that we get down to nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts, and present case histories to the audience with panel discussion and get uh, a consensus of how various panel members or audience folks would handle that particular case. You go home thinking, feeling like you, you've got a, a handle on the current consensus. Gary Condon, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Anytime. 
ask questions of Dr. Reed or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.